Amen. Good morning. You may be seated. Celebrating Memorial Day. Uh, as I was talking to someone, it's just amazing that God has been this good to a, a nation like America. Uh, we've had many of our soldiers lose their lives in wars and battles and everything, and Freedom is not free, as they say. Freedom is also not free. That's why Jesus had to come and uh, surrender his life, give his life for us. We were shackled in sins, without hope and without God in the world until Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave on the third day. And he sits at the right hand of the Father continuously, making intercessions for us, and that's a blessing. But we're in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. Pastor Jonathan did 5 last Sunday. As I was uh, had my iPhone and I was cleaning out the car while Jonathan was teaching, and I said, you know what? It's, I don't know. The, the first thought is always the fleshly thought. I've lived long enough to know that. And I said, I could enjoy this missing Sundays. I'm, I mean, I'm cleaning out the car, and I, I never get to do this, and listening to Pastor Jonathan. T- I, I see why people don't come to church consecutively like they do. And then as soon as I said that, I stomped my toe. <laughs> and the, and, and I, it had to be the Lord because he said, not you. Not you. You need to be in church every Sunday. You need to be teaching the word and applying the word. And, you know, it's, and I say that because it's so easy. Oh, I'll miss this Sunday. I'll miss a Sunday. But the trick that Satan and the flesh is so good at, it feels good to miss a Sunday. And then you start missing two Sundays. And then you start missing three Sundays. So it's something good about discipline, and it's great, just great to be here, great to have you guys here. We're at the chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul has written a letter to the Corinthians. He said in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called an apostle to be, is not there uh, in the original text, of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And he does this because it was an occasion of this letter that necessitated a series, he's he's really about to get into it, of several rebukes and criticisms. And then he will give detailed instructions to the Corinthians. And like I said, Pastor Jonathan, he did a wonderful job on chapter 5. And he spoke a little bit about judging And what Paul and his gospel is saying, he insists on it, that the church is not to judge those that are on the outside, but we must judge those on the inside. And that had to do with the expulsion of the incestuous man. And the Corinthians were so full of joy that they thought they had did the right thing by not kicking the man out of church. They were joyous about that. And Paul tells them, hey, you've missed the mark. You, when, when, next time you guys get together and, I, and I'm there in spirit, you, you turn him over, you kick him out, that the flesh may be done away with, but he will be saved in spirit. And that's what the Lord wants for us. Judging is an inside affair. Jesus, he gives us a great example of that in Luke 12 when he says, I'm sure Jesus and his disciples are walking and this young man comes up to him and he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Jesus did, man, (laughs) I'd love to hear him say that, man who made me a judge, and an arbitrator over you. That was an insignificance 
that Jesus didn't want to walk down. The problem we're about to look at, apparently one brother, A, had in some way defrauded brother B. And to rectify the grievances, man B took man A to court, civil court it is, at the Bema seat. And the Bema seat was at the Agora, and the Agora is the marketplace in front of everybody. That's why they had it at the marketplace. People would do their shopping and getting their foods and things like that. And right in that area sat the Bema seat. So everybody could stop shopping and start looking what's going on so all the world can see. And this whole scene feels Paul with indignation, so much so that there is scarcely an argument at all as we go through these paragraphs. It's biting, it will be abrupt, and it begins as though it was a word to the offender, but instead it becomes a word to the entire church as a whole. And it is clear that for Paul, this is an open and shut case. It's, it's such an easy case to Paul that even Stevie Wonder could see it. Shouldn't have been a problem. But the failure of the two men is primarily a failure of the entire church, the entire community, a failure to live and behave as the eschatological people of God in a pagan city like Corinth. Eschatological is the doctrine of end times, all those things that will happen during the end times. And we must, to see Paul's point of view, which is the Lord's point of view, and we should have the mindset of this once we become believers, we're, we're living in a community. Our king has told us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And this is the key part. The world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. They're this eschatological community whose existence as God's future people absolutely determines how they live now. I've said it before, make it a little simpler. Jesus Christ has already hit the home run. We win the game if you're on his team, but the scoreboard does not reflect. It, it, it got stuck. It hasn't moved yet, but we have won. And so, that's the mindset the Lord and Paul wants the children of God to understand. We've already won. We're just going through the preliminary of being here now. And that should breed confidence and security also in us. And we should live a special way by that. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5 says, let a man so consider us as servants, underroars. We do the hard work of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged, Paul says, by you, because Paul has his eyes on Jesus and standing in front of him. And when we have our eyes on Jesus and standing in front of him, everything else should be not a care in the world, judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsel of, of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. So in light of this eschatological realities, because that's what it is, matters of everyday life, 
may be assessed as something or somewhat trivial. Living down here should be trivial. That's what Paul wants us to understand. It's going in front of these pagan courts that concerns themselves with such trivialities. Themselves, they they become unimportant. Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1, dare, and that denotes rash, even insulting action. So he starts out swinging the bat hard. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, this is a lawsuit, go to law before the unrighteous, the ungodly, edicoid, the unjust, and not before the saints. Now, I know what the Roman Catholic Church, how they make saints, how you become a saint there, but the Bible knows nothing about that. You don't have to get voted on. Once you're saved and born again, you automatically become a saint. Having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous, the ungodly, the unjust, and not before the saints, the Lord's people. Paul is upset because he has in view, once again, this eschatological realities to which he is making appeal to them. The secular court system, the unrighteous, who is in contrast to the Lord's people, they will not inherit the kingdom of God, the unrighteous. They will be judged by the Lord's people. They will be judged by us. And so Paul is saying, what are you guys doing? Taking a case that you should have settled and handled it with brother against brother and letting the, the, the church know about it. You take it to the unjust. He says in verse 2, do you not know? So he's speaking rhetorically. He's using a rhetorical formula. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's you. That's I. Jesus says, Paul says, we're going to judge the world. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters this little silly lawsuit. And it's not because Christians are exclusive. We're not. But because we are eschatological people. And that's our mindset. And I will continue to say that because that's the way we should be living. We're in this world. We're not of this world. We should have our minds on spiritual things. And even what uh, the bad things that affect us, if we have our mind properly placed where it should be, knowing that we've won the game, knowing that Paul said... These small trials of mine, all it does is make me more and more like Jesus. We've won the game. Why so serious? We're going to win. We're just running out the clock now because we're eschatological people. And in God's final judgment, we have our eyes on that. And that's what matters, not what goes on on this, on this earth. This is a clear indication, I've said it before, of already, but not yet. When we are saved, when we're born again, the game is over. We've won, but we still have to run the course. That's what Jesus, that's what Paul is saying. He tells us in verse 2, do you not know? Because they should know these things Paul has taught them. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Daniel 7, the judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. Not now. Judge those on the inside, Paul is saying. But one day we will judge angels. As a whole, the entire anti-God system of, of, of things is messed up. From politics to tiddlywinks. I, I, I used to be a news guy. I've slowed down on the news because so much things are going on in this world, in America, that I just have to shake my head that God just hasn't come down right now. From politics to tiddlywinks, everything has gone sideways. But we're going to judge the angels one day. Revelation 17, 4, 6 tells us this. And I read this verse because I see so much evil in the political realm, cheating, cunning, getting over on, on just regular people and all these things as if 
they're going to get away with it. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her head, a name was written, Mystery Babylon, the great mother of harlots, of the abominations of the earth. That's what Jesus constantly looks like. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Given this eschatological reality, Paul makes his first point, the triviality of lawsuits. Why even bother with it in this present age? Paul says, are you not able to judge trivial cases? Such matters are trivial. They add up to zero in the light of the coming of Christ and living and reigning with him. So why bother with them, Paul says? Christians who do really are simply, we're after the wrong things. They altogether miss the meaning of of this present existence of the people of God, people who live in the present by the values of the future. They know what's coming. They know the rewards that's coming. So they kind of just shake things off. It doesn't matter. A, A quick example, I live in Lawrenceville, 161 Carver Circle. They're widening the road. Now, on the, when you step out of my house, on the right side of the road, they could widen that. There's no houses over there. But they want to widen the road on my side. And if you step out the door, I've, I've only got a little yard to cut, seven, eight feet. They, they, they think they're going to take half of that. So when I open the door, I'm getting ran over by a car. And you know, I said, uh, I was upset for a second, because that's the flesh. And then I said, you know, I told Lydia, I said, I'm not even going to worry about it. Whatever happens, happens. This ball of dirt right here is not mine. It's not mine. Let them do what they want to. I've got a home, and it's going to be spacious. It's going to be nice in heaven. And that's the mindset the Holy Spirit is warning these Corinthians to know. He says, do you not know that we shall judge angels, judgment of the fallen angels? So inclusive will be our participation in this that we will even judge angels, the newly formed eschatological people. In light of these things, these earthly matters, once again, are trivial. They add up to zero in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. He says, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? And Paul, what he's doing, he's moving them from spiritual things that they will have one day to where they are at now, to temporal ones. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed to judge, to least esteemed by the church to judge, literally those who are despised, speaking of the unbelievers. He says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. He has said he didn't want to shame them, but now he says you deserve this shaming because they are people who are supposed to have their minds set on heaven. Paul says, is it so that there is not a wise man among you? Not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren in a church that harps on their wisdom of Sophia, of uh, they're so prodded out and everything, they can't find anyone to judge these two. That's what Paul is saying. They brag about sophas, but they're going to the unbelievers to settle this. Paul is trying to help the Corinthians see their true condition over against their perceived one. And that's what we all need to understand. Really, we blow ourselves up. And the Lord is saying, hey, read the word. Let me show you who you really are. He says in verse six, but brother goes to law against brother 
and that before unbelievers. The church is airing its dirty laundry to the public. The world loves to see that, as if there were no real difference between believers and unbelievers. And this is still obviously a very difficult word for believers in English-speaking North America. Not only do most of us not generally think within the New Testament eschatological categories, but our values tend to place such a high priority on property that a number of hermeneutical ploys or hefts to be made just to get that. And we won't do that with this text. There are simply too many of us who still have our interests in this present age for us to have any desire to hear it applied to a contemporary church. We are caught up in the things of the world, and the Holy Spirit is saying, touch this world gently. I'm coming back. Paul turns his attention to the two men involved in this case. He says in verse 7, now, therefore, it is already an utter failure just because you took it to the world for you that you go to law against one another. You're shaming both the church and themselves. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Now, think about that, what Paul has just asked them. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why not indeed? For people of God living in the old age, where selfishness is all around, one can give many of reasons why not. But they all begin with the word but. But he did me wrong. But I deserve that. We're motivated by some self-protection or self-gain. He says, why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? That's cutting against the grain of our flesh. But remember, we're supposed to be walking by the Spirit. He says in verse 8, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. This shows the influence of Jesus Christ in Paul's life because they were saying Paul never hung out with Jesus. Paul never got, uh, was not, never taught by Christ. But everything Paul says, if you listen to what he says, has Jesus all in it. Paul says, do not return evil for evil, a direct reflection of spending time with Jesus. We are living. Now that we are born again, we are living that should be our heart set. We are living in the new age. Jesus said this in Luke 17. Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them and said, the kingdom of God, here it is, does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for the kingdom of God is within you. So when you're born again, the kingdom of God comes in you, and that's why you should be living as if you're in the kingdom of God, because you are in the kingdom of God the way Jesus sees it. So when someone does you wrong, that's why you can turn the other cheek and do all those things that Jesus has said, because you're now living in the kingdom of God. That what, that's what makes us a peculiar people to the world. So what if they take something? They're not really taking what's mine anyway. I'm not going to be here forever. And that's the mindset we should have. We should overcome evil with good, even if it means personal loss. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying here. This brother not only have staved off real defeat by what he did, but he messed up his blessing that he could have had. First Peter chapter 2, 19 through 21, I love this. It says, for this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, Victor, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God, for to this you were called. Don't get it twisted. Because Christ also suffered for us, 
leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Know you yourselves do wrong and cheat, Paul says, and you do these things to your brethren. Paul, again, is broadening his argument, speaking to the church. He says in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous, adequates, the, the, the wrongdoers, and so what Paul is doing, he ties the words of warning to wrongdoing that has proceeded, and at the same time, he ties the question with which this all began in verse 1. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I could sit right there for a long time, but I'm not. My wife is here. <laughs> I used to argue with that. When I first got saved, I told you Pastor Terry took me and we sat down, and I think it was IHOP, and he opened that up to me. He said, do you not know, do not be deceived that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. I've been saved about three months, going back to old ways. And it hit me like a ton of bricks because I grew up in church. I heard of once saved, always saved, give your life to the Lord, and then that's the way it is. And, but as I'm reading Scripture, I can't jive with that. If I want the Lord to keep me, he will keep me. Jesus says, all those that I have in my hand, no one can snatch them out. But you can walk away. You have your own mind. But, and I'm learning more and more as I read Ezra and I, as I read Genesis and I read the Old Testament, how much God runs after the prodigal. How much God runs after the, the backslidden person. He gives them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn back to him. But you have to make up your mind. You have to make up your mind. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covenants, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So here's a piece of eschatological teaching. You can take this to the bank. The, the Corinthians had previously been informed the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's point in all of this is to warn the Lord's people. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing right now. He's warning the Lord's people, not only the man who has wronged his brother, but the whole community, that if they persist in their unrighteousness, they are in the same danger of not inheriting the kingdom. You know, some theolo theologies have great difficulty with such warnings. They say that they are essentially hypothetical. I don't believe that. Since God's children cannot be disinherited. I find what Paul is speaking of from Genesis to Revelation. If you want to stay with the Lord, he will keep you. But there has to be a life change. There has to be a transformation if you know the Lord. I'll put it in black and white and ABCs. You cannot say you're saved and then live any way you want to. Live like the unrighteous. Heaven wouldn't even be a good place for you. You wouldn't know how to act there. And that's what he's saying here. Matthew, we've all heard it. Chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Warning, flashing light. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Gerzamai, to work, to practice. I know that that speaks volumes to me. I've told you guys before, I remember uh, granddaddy and mom and daddy, they could be talking about biblical things and he could read, he could write, but he didn't have a great education and he would just read his Bible. He said, you know what? I don't practice sin. Before I ever knew that's what it meant, before I was an unbeliever, but I remember him saying that. He says, I don't practice sin. That's what the unbeliever does. And that's what Paul is trying to correct by the Holy Spirit. You guys are saying you're you're Sophia, you have all this wisdom, but your life has not changed. And he's first speaking to those on the outside, the community of faith. But Paul's concern is that the Corinthians must stop deceiving themselves, or at least being deceived, by persisting in the same behavior as those already destined for judgment. If it were not so, this is clear, then the warning is no warning at all because that's what he's doing. He's warning. Paul invites them. That's what he's imploring them to change their behavior by reminding them that they they don't belong to God like that. But God has did a gracious work in them through the Spirit. And if Christ is in you, he will change you. And Paul can hardly bring himself to what he's about to say next because he doesn't even want them to think they're not saved. So he's walking a tightrope. He says, verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, thank God, but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Really, this sentence functions summarily to the indicative, a sign of indication of something. I'll give you a picture of it. First uh, Corinthians five seven, Paul is speaking. And he says, "This Christ is our Passover. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us." In the same way, the imperative, what he's saying in this passage, an imperative is absolutely necessary or required. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for you. So intended to be taken seriously, just like this warning and in this passage, it's, content, it's, it's there to be taken seriously. This list is what the wicked is still like, and because of that, They will not inherit God's kingdom. They practice sins. Those who persist in the same activities are in similar danger. Paul says that is what some of you were. Now in Christ Jesus, you are something different. And then he says, so live like it. That's what Terry told me. You've been born again, so live like it. That's what I tell my son. You said you've been born again, so live like it. And it shouldn't be hard to do if the Holy Spirit is inside of us. And that's the whole concern here. He's telling them to live out this new life in Christ and stop being like the wicked. He says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. A great theological statement there. The three verbs are primarily metaphors of salvation, each expression a special facet of their conversion. Washed, and this does not mean baptism. We've said it a million times. I know you guys know it. Baptism doesn't save anyone. He says you're sanctified, set apart for God, God's work then, a godly living. And then he says you're justified. So now you're right in the sight of God. 
These three metaphors emphasizes the aspect of Christian conversion, theological terms. Paul's theologically is not abstraction, but the real application of the gospel. He's living this out. That's what we should do. Walk this out. And it, and it, and it, you don't do this by yourselves. We do this by the grace that has been extended to us. When we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes inside, grace is there, and we want to do the right thing. We want to live holy lives. And we can live holy lives by the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. He says, but such was some of you. And that is not to whitewash the sinner without regeneration, because you have to be regenerated in order to be born again. It's transformation. Paul simply would not understand any other theology than that. He goes on and he says in verse 12, and they begin to say these slogans. They, They had slogans that they would use. And he says in verse 12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And so when he says everything is permissible for me, for Paul, it is only one in Christ that makes everything permissible for him. Would Christ do it? He says food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, another slogan. And this is what the Corinthians use this slogan for. Food was necessary When I got the urge to eat, it was necessary, so I eat. So when I got the urge to have sex, it was okay. My body was telling me to have sex, so I would have sex. That's what they use that for. And Paul is saying that's foolishness. Don't get caught up in that. He says this in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 13. Paul said, and what he's going to do, he's going to divide man Spirit, soul, and body. And that's why I'm reading 2 Corinthians 2. He says this, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus, Paul says. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, in fact, when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way, conflicts conflicts on the outside, fear within. The body, therefore, is not perishable but eternal. What they were thinking in Corinth, that the body is going to be done away with anyway, so it doesn't matter what you do. And he's saying, no, it does matter. It wasn't made for sexual immorality. The common secular Greek approach to the body and soul in first century was that the body was material, temporary, and merely a distraction. It was no good. From our true being, the soul, they said, the body was irrelevant to the soul. By contrast, what God teaches through the Bible and the early believers taught, the physical body was part of God's original makeup, Genesis 2-7. And therefore, the physical body was an essential part of humanity. Though the physical body is currently subject to corruption, suffering, sin, death, In this present life, God's plan is not to annihilate the body and free our souls in a bodiless existence for eternity. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 through 5, for in this we groan, Paul says, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit, which is a guarantee. As remarkable as it may sound, and I still, it's hard for me to get my mind around it. God's plan is not to annihilate the body and free our souls in a bodiless existence for eternity. No, 
God's plan is to glorify man's body once again through resurrection. The Corinthians, they were struggling with this view, the human body that differed greatly from ours. The body to them was like a prison of the soul, merely a physical shell of the real person. In light of this strong dualism that separated soul and body, the body could be understood to have no more value. But because of his sensual earthly appetites, it seduced the good soul to sin and dragged it down into the gutters of vice. That's what they thought. It's two approaches to life emerged from this philosophy. One group became aesthetics, those who through harsh self-discipline and even self-mutilation went to ridiculous extremes to curb the body desires. We was told of, uh, I can't think of that uh, pope right now who, who did this. He had a problem with it. Others became hedonistic. They believed that since only the soul would survive death, it didn't matter what, one, what was done through the body. They gave the body every opportunity to quench its lustful bondings, longings. Both approaches were to be found in Corinth and unfortunately had infected many in the church there. And Paul is trying to straighten them out on this. 1 Corinthians 6.14 tells us, God raised up the Lord and also raised up, raised up by his power and is not meant for sexual immorality, but for union with the Lord. And God will do away with both of them. Now, what, what he means by this in the sense of being dependent on food and affected by hunger, though there will be food in heaven, you can eat if you want to. You don't have to eat it if you don't want to, but I'm going to eat carrot cake in heaven. I know that's going to be the best. But he's, what he's speaking to is sexual immorality. They're saying, once again, if I feel the need for hunger, I can eat. If I feel the need for sex, I should be able to do it, which was a vice, which they knew wasn't right. And that's what Paul is trying to correct them on. He says in verse 13, the latter part of that, however... The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know, he says it again, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. And what he's talking about here, he's talking about breaking your arm, your legs, all of the parts of your body. Are we going to take those to Christ and make them a harlot? We are called the body of Christ, individually members. Everything we do, whatever we do, it has an effect with Christ in us. We should let Christ rule peacefully and gently in the midst of us. Romans 6.13 says this, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, there it is, to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Galatians 3.5 tells us, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So we're back to verse 16. Paul says, or do you not know Rhetorical skills. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot, that word join, kalamai in the Greek, it's a bun that will be more or less permanent. It's gluing something. It's cementing. It's welding something. That's what happens when two becomes one. Is one body with her. For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. And, of course, we get that from Genesis chapter 2. Ephesians 5, uh, verse 31 and 32 says this. For this reason, comes from Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, there it is, glued to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord, same effect when the Lord comes into our lives, 
We are now joined to the Lord, one spirit with him. That's why he says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Because sexual immorality, you're not only doing it alone and with someone else, the Lord is there. And if he doesn't like me to just be in a a bad attitude and he's in my heart and he's saying, I don't like your attitude and I don't like that, how much more does he not like sexual immorality? He says, flee sexual immorality. And then he says something very strange. He says, every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. It's almost like with a harlot or anyone, when you have sex, whatever is their hangups spiritually becomes your hangups. You don't get the best of people in sexual immorality, you get the worst of people. And you're bringing harm to yourself, Paul says. Or do you not know the third time that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And when he says the temple of the Holy Spirit, he's just not saying in the outer courtyard or in the inner sanctuary. He's saying exactly the naos, where the holy of holies dwell. That's how much, that's how close God is in us. He's indwelling us. Do you not know, Paul says, that you are the temple of God? That should, that should make us want to live holy lives. After all, Jesus Christ has done for us. He who became sin, now that we are believers, we're going to keep him in that filth as if it does not matter? It does matter. And the Lord will show us how much it matters one day. This is, I didn't want to get here, but I got here anyway. Forgive me. This is happening in churches. It was happening then and it's happening now. We have to remember that we have been set aside the believer for the Lord. And we must honor him. And we cannot live any way we want to and say we're honoring him. We, we learned that in Ezra last Wednesday. Ezra says, now you're going to come into the Lord's house after you committed all these uh, 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 fornications and all this stuff, you want to come and stand in front of me and say, we are the people of the Lord? Wink, wink. God doesn't wink at sin. He takes it very seriously because it cost his son his life. He died. He paid a great price for us. And we should take that with us every morning we wake up. Lord, I belong to you. I want to please you. I'm here to please you. That's the only reason I'm on this earth. That's the only reason it makes me different. I'm a peculiar people, person, because you live inside of me. And how much more, if God took his spirit from Ezekiel, the temple when Ezekiel was uh, living, Ichabod, that's what he said. The temple raised up and left the sanctuary in the temple. And that was only the temple, and he couldn't stand it. How much more we, the people of God, that's what I'm trying to get you to understand. I'm trying to get myself to understand. It matters how we live. We just get, oh, I messed up. Yeah, I got in the flesh today, and I did this, and I did that. God, he's long-suffering. 
But sooner or later, you've got to become what you say you are or else you're a fake. You're a hypocrite. I feel so sorry for the hypocrite because the hypocrite is the last one to know what's going to happen to him. He thinks he, he might slide by through this life with everything, has, has everybody fooled, and he's the biggest fool around because in the end, he's going to stand in front of Jesus Christ. And then it's too late. That's why the Holy Spirit gives the church, not giving the outside, he's giving the church these warnings. Verse 24, you were bought at a price. Since you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I think verse Peter says it well, chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. He says, therefore, Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind every morning. I should do that. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay. Notice it says the time of your stay. We're not going to be here forever. In fear, be here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed. Here it is with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. It matters how we live. The worship team can come up. It always has mattered. God, I've said it before, God is not the father of everybody. He created everybody, but he's only the father of those who knows Jesus Christ who's been born again. And if we've been born again, Paul is saying, live like it. Stop making excuses. Stop saying all these slogans, but live like it. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you to live holy lives. There's really not an excuse because we know the ball game is over with. The score just doesn't reflect it. We should have a, I will never forget, and this is a, I'll tell you real quick, this is going around the barn. I remember in my senior year in high school playing basketball, I was averaging about 16 points a game. You heard that, didn't you? And uh, it was the Gwinnett County Tournaments, and we had never won the Gwinnett County Tournaments. South Gwinnett, Burkmore, they would always beat us. Coach Johnson comes into the locker room. And he's usually always in there, but he didn't come until we were all dressed and ready. He said, I want you to close your eyes. And he says, I want you to, to uh, imagine every shot you take is going through the hoop. He's never did this before. It's going through the hoop. Every pass you make is crisp, no turnovers, the whole game. We went out there, and I swear we couldn't miss. We couldn't miss. But the second half came, and he didn't give us that talk. <laughs> and we went back to our ways. <laughs> we started turning the ball over. We started missing shots. And I said, Coach, you should have gave us that speech again. That's my point. We've won, and I'm going to drill this into your heads, but we have to live like it. We know we've won because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We win. It doesn't matter how hard it gets down here. And I don't say that trivially. 
It might be hard days. You might be going through something right now. But in light of eternity, that's what I'm talking about. We've won the game. Those that uh, falls in Christ and they are sleeping, they're going to come back. You're going to see them again. That's sure. That's going to happen. So what if I cry down here? So what if I have hard days down here? He's told us we're going to have hard days. But Jesus loves us, and he wants every one of us to run to the finish line. And that's why Paul is telling them this. You say you are believers. I know you are believers. Paul doesn't ever say, I think you are. He says, I know you are. I know the work that was done. The Holy Spirit came inside of you, but you're acting like you're not. And it matters. It matters. God is long-suffering. He's gracious. But sooner or later, we have to turn the page and say, hey, I'm going to live for you, Lord. I'm, I'm going to surrender my life like you surrendered your life and live for you no matter what. That's what Paul is telling them. There's brighter days ahead. You might not get any brighter, bright days down here. I feel sorry. You might not. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to have an eternity of them. I keep telling you guys, what's 70 years? What's 80 years? It's nothing in light of eternity. I get encouraged when I get around my mama because my mama is 88 and she still works out and she still does all those things. And she says, I start getting worried when she says, I'm just ready to go home now. I said, what you talking about, mama? Y'all didn't get that. (laughs) What are you talking about, mama? Well, you know, all my friends, they're, they're, they're gone. Your dad is gone. But you know what she does every morning? She gets on that bike and she exercises. So she's really not ready to go. But she is ready because she knows the Lord. And that's how you live. I can testify to her walk because she's, she's had hard days. Hard days but she still lives for the Lord. And that's what Paul is exerting, exhorting us to do. You're going to have hard times down here. You're going to lose loved ones down here. But I pray that they know the Lord because you'll get to see them again. This is an easy race if you really think about it. I'm going back to my high school days. Now, I remember when I ran track, I didn't run it long because I was slow. But... uh the clock, the gun would go off, and we'd take off in 100, whatever. And uh, it was before it, was, it would end like that. And Coach Holmes says, that's Victor. Victor, that's your life. He was a crazy. Victor, that's your life. That's how quick it's going to end. And at 18 or 19, I thought he just didn't know what he was talking about. But at 63, he knew what he was talking about. When we look back, no matter what happens to us in this life, when we look back, it's going to be just like that. And we're going to wish that we would have walked better and we would have did the right thing because it matters how you live. That's why Paul has this sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians here. It matters. Don't let the enemy, don't let the flesh tell you, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it matters. Don't the Holy Spirit wouldn't have it here. Let's pray. Father, I'm amazed at your your love. I'm amazed at how you continue to track people down. Some of us think you're not working, but you're working. You're always working. Jesus, you said that. And Lord, the reason you work, you know what joy it will be when we see you face to face, if we finish this race. But on the flip side of that, you know what hell is like for an eternity. 
when we never became what we could have been. You love us that much, Lord. And I pray that you would gird up the loins of our hearts and our mind to want to serve you, to just surrender everything to you and allow you to have your way, knowing that it's going to be worth it in the end. Father, I pray for everyone here who has unsaved children that you would work mightily. I know you're working. That you would work mightily in their lives. That you would uh, just continue to encourage the parents to continue to pray, to continue to live godly lives, knowing that one day it's going to pay off. One day it's going to pay off. One day we're going to be around your throne, sons and daughters at Calvary Restore, and we're going to say, hey, well done. And we never have to worry about this body of sin again. Lord, we love you. Expand our hearts to love you more. May we pray for one another. May we pray for the church. May we pray that we never stop running hard after you, Lord. I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.